Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Notable. Welcome to Notable. The podcast that finds fascinating stories from the world of music. Um, I'm Stuart McConey. Yeah. I'm Elizabeth Holker. We cover the whole 500 years, roughly. <laughs> roughly, <laughs> yes, of music. Um, hey, thank you for all so your nice people. comments. Yeah, I've been getting in touch, haven't they? I know. We've, we've been mm. delighted by the take-up and response so far. Don't forget to subscribe to us and like us and all that stuff. I suppose I should say all that stuff, but... Uh, Shay Morgan, thank you for all your lovely comments. Uh, Ian Barton. Lee McDonald has been in touch on Facebook. He went to Batley Varieties Club, so enjoyed that episode Quite a few people liking the Batley Varieties stuff. Rob G says it needs a film. Shay Meadows should do a film about it. Um, yeah, the Batley Varieties yeah, stuff. Yeah, not a bad idea. It's not Alan Parker liking the jazz stuff about 1959. More jazz, please. Yep, we'll be doing more jazz. Yeah. Andrew Brownlow, um, he went to Bickershaw for the first time last Friday, just after he'd heard our episode on Bickershaw. What a Excellent. coincidence. Ian Purser, thank you very much. Wacker Jawacker uh, is the Corrigan of Bartley Varieties, the same Corrigans who own the amusement arcades in Scarborough. I should imagine they are. Thank you so much for all of your responses. Keep getting in touch. Please do. You can follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to us at all the podcast platforms. What are we going to talk about today? Or actually... Tonight, this is our first nighttime record. It is. I'm going to be controversial and say I have a glass of wine. I broke all my wine glasses over <laughs> Christmas, so I've got a tumbler. That's my wow. excuse. <laughs> it's Terry's birthday today as well. He's one year old. That's Elizabeth's dog. Mm. Happy birthday, Terry. So um, we're going to talk about, well, in a moment, I'm going to lead us through a discussion, a little chat about one of the most extraordinary pieces of music of the 20th century mm-hmm. and certainly the most extraordinary premiere, uh, Olivier Messiaen's Quartet for the End of Time. Absolutely. And I am keeping it Lancashire. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to Rochdale, my hometown. Rochdale, Rock City. Just a kind of curious tale about Rochdale and how it influenced the musical landscape, especially in the 70s. Okay, well, let's start there. You are, as you okay. said, from Rochdale. What kind of town is Rochdale? Well, this is the thing about these towns outside of Manchester, um, as you know, Stuart, being from Wigan. Yeah. Um, they're actually really rich. They get a bad name, don't they? But they're mm-hmm. actually really rich in terms of history and culture. They were mm-hmm. all, you know, a really important part of the Industrial Revolution. In Rochdale, it was the cotton industry, uh, especially. I know Wigan was, was more kind of mining, wasn't it? Well, so, yeah, mining and cotton, yeah. Cotton, yeah, yeah. So the legacy of that is really I mean we have some really impressive buildings in Rochdale the town hall which I do like to talk about quite a lot modeled on the houses of parliament but all these sort of really impressive buildings from that era a lot of civic pride around that and a diverse population as well you know there's so many different immigrant communities in Rochdale so I always think they're kind of strangely outward looking but also have this really strong sense of identity and community and you know trade unionism is big there 
these big characters as you often get in small places that are quite proud mm-hmm. to be what they are um open hearts and because of all that i think a creative spirit so one person who found this when he visited rochdale was john peel now this is a good story mm, yeah he, it is did he work there briefly well his father was a rich mill owner from liverpool mm-hmm. and when john was a youth his father wanted to teach him the trade so he sent him to rochdale to work in a cotton mill Townhead mill for people yeah. who like to collect those kinds of facts 1959 this would be wouldn't it Around that time, yeah, late 50s, early 60s, before he became a DJ. And he just really liked the place. His wife, Sheila, has spoken quite a lot about how it just kind of triggered this lifelong affection for Rochdale, strangely. Yeah. I mean, he's only human. <laughs> apparently, apparently later on in life, if he ever got bands, if he ever got demo well, tapes... Well, this is the story. ...with a Rochdale yeah, postmark, yes. he paid particular yes. attention to them, didn't exactly. he? Exactly. So, years later, beginning of the 70s, just as another slight aside about kind of small towns and this particular era in time, there was quite a lot of investment at this time in art schools in mm-hmm. um, small places around the UK. They had really active arts colleges. The way that art was taught changed in the 50s, 60s and 70s. So there were these really kind of vibrant art colleges, municipal art colleges. Rochdale had one. We had a sculpture park. I think there's parts of it still there. But it was really well thought of. And so many musicians of that era came through art schools, didn't they? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. you know, the Rolling Stones and John Lennon and, you know, so all the, so this was kind of going on. And these small towns really were developing in the 60s and 70s, these quite vibrant, not just art scenes, as I said, musicians came mm-hmm. through the arts colleges as well. So... In Rochdale, this was the case, and there was one band leading the way that I'm sure you know, Tractor. Uh, That's Jim Milne and Steve Clayton, who they'd been playing together actually since the mid-60s. They were kind they're like kind of a proggy, folky, proto-pub rock punk band, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. They were called The Way We Live, weren't they? They were. Uh, Initially, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they were managed by this guy who was a sound engineer and a guitar technician. He was called John Briley. John Briley. John Briley, yeah, I think. They got some sort of decent reviews. And they did, as all bands did in those days, sent their demo to lots of record labels in London just as a tape. They sent it to Electra Records. And via a guy called Clive Selwood, who was working there at the time, this found its way to John Peel, who, despite obviously at that time receiving kind of thousands and thousands of demos saw the postmark on this record and it was Rochdale and he opened it and he signed them to his Dandelion Records label not just that he then gave them £2,000 to buy tons of recording equipment everything that they needed basically they bought a a PA a stereo PA system um, loads of uh, recording gear and they set up this little studio uh, in a terraced house in Edenfield Road in Rochdale and John called it Dandelion Studios right so they recorded their uh, debut album that got to number 18 in the charts wow yeah and after the back of this success, they set up this little shop uh, on Kenyon Street in Rochdale, which really oddly is also the birthplace of Gracie Fields. So there must be something kind of in the atmosphere okay. around there, as you'll hear, because so much more was to happen. So John Briley, who I mentioned, their manager and this guitar tech, he started to work out of cargo as the kind of studio engineer there. He'd previously... He'd bought an old ambulance, actually, and turned it into a recording studio. And he was also a cameraman for Granada TV, 
So he got to know Tony Wilson. So just a second though, Cargo then is the name of the studios that Yes, so Cargo was set up, was set up on Kenyon Street. So, right. so yes. Tractors set up this little studio in the attic with the money that John Peel gave them. Yeah. They called that Dandelion Studios. But and then, then Cargo, after their record yeah. did so well in the charts, yeah, and they started to to make some money they took over this little it's an old warehouse actually it was a record shop when i was a kid we used to go we used to get the bus down drake street and go there they sold cds and guitars and things and upstairs was this recording studio and john briley who'd been managing the managing them and producing them he became kind of the main sort of studio engineer at cargo studios but he'd previously been kind of doing this with this old ambulance that he'd fitted out mm-hmm. with an eight-track recording desk. And he was also a cameraman. So he, he knew Tony Wilson and he was able to kind of tell Tony Wilson about this studio and John Peel's kind of connection to it. So Tony was kind of catching on to this. Not only this, but he really was he was a sound nerd he really by all accounts kind of understood sound Mm -hmm. and he wanted to capture the well the particular energy that bands of that era had in the live moment these gigs were raucous weren't they this is kind of punk post-punk heavy metal new wave so the studio it had a concrete floor and he just put kind of a thin layer of carpet over it and there were brick walls the the soundproofing was kind of bare minimum soundproofing for the real sound nerd, shall we go into this? How nerdy is it? <laughs> well, the re- the recorder was, um, it's a Caddy 16 track with, unusually, valves on the record side, which meant you could hammer the tape without getting distortion. Right. So this, this created this really unique cargo sound, which was clean, but sort of raucous and quite powerful at the same time. So, Gang of Four went to Cargo to record. Uh, They recorded damaged goods there. Yeah. And then Tony, being savvy and knowing this John Peel connection and the Tractor connection, started to send all the factory records bands down there because Mm -hmm. he obviously realised that if they had a Rochdale postmark on there, then John Peel was more likely to play them. So he sent Joy Division. Joy Division recorded digital and glass there. He asked John Briley, Tony, this is, asked John Briley if, because they didn't have any money to pay for the recording, he asked him if he would take a punt and get royalties if the record did well rather than being paid. But yeah. he, John Briley said he wanted a day rate, so he ended up not getting any royalties That's for all right. the work he did on Joy Division and New Order records. He got 80 quid flat fee Something. instead of future yeah, royalties yeah. on Joy Division and New Order, which must yeah. make him kick himself from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> Most famously, Atmosphere was recorded there. Yeah. Um, the Joy Division song. The Fall went there. They recorded several albums and singles at Cargo. John Briley got on really well with Marky e. Smith. There was a lot of mutual respect there. Martin Hannick spent a lot of time there, actually. He recorded OMD. He recorded Joy Division there as well. Jerusi Collin. Yeah. Nico went there to record. Yeah. Echo and the Bunnymen. And all this was just because... You know, it was this kind of magical John Peel connection. It's the place, isn't it? I mean, yes, it, we should say o- OMD recorded Electricity, the first single, and, and P- Wilson said, you are changing the future of music in this room. Um, yeah. Isn't it at Cargo were famously, and you might have seen this in 24-Hour Party People, it's Cargo where Martin Hannett makes Stephen from jo- on uh, record the, on the roof, isn't it? On the roof. And, yeah. it sounded, and as Hooky said, it sounded terrible, so he came back inside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and then, so Rochdale became this like, it's just weird to think, isn't it? Not Still not many people actually know this, even though there is a blue plaque there, right opposite the blue plaque 
um, that commemorates where Gracie Fields was born. And it is a working studio again now, but I think they just do kind of digital okay. mix in there. But the fact is, is that all these bands of that era and of that particular sound were going to Rochdale. And out of this, the Deeply Vale Festival, which people do yes. tend to talk about, this started in the hills just outside Rochdale. Chris Hewitt, who we mentioned mm-hmm. um, as being the character, mm-hmm. he's, I'm sure he's going to pop up throughout many episodes of Notable. He'd worked with Jeremy Beadle on Bickershaw. And so he had the idea, but he was was from Rochdale. And he had the idea to do a similar thing in Rochdale. It was all free, Deeply Vale. But it's credited as being one of the first festivals to kind of really integrate those punk bands and those post-punk bands into the festival scene. So the pictures are quite funny because there really is a mix of people. The Fall headlined one of the most famous Deeply Vale festivals. Steve Hillage played famously. So it was like that mix of, they of were, styles. Yeah, they were. It was the beginning of a scene that kind of went on right into the almost, almost like the crusty and new age traveler scene because it was a yeah. mixture of you would get hippies, you would get punks, you would basically yeah. get people who didn't want to, you know, the Deepleyville festivals were real you know. get togethers for people who were really rejecting kind of normal society, yeah. as it were. Yeah. There's a picture of a car that's fallen into a stream. Yeah. just on the site and the people who are trying to pull it out like some of them are wearing flares some of them are wearing drain pipes yeah. <laughs> so it was quite unusual I think at that time for there to be um a mix of, of those yeah. you know different music fans so that is the story Rochdale, of Rochdale Rochdale. and the post-punk scene and its impact in the 70s Shall I tell you another good musical Rochdale fact while we're here? I can think of another Just couple, but go on. Oh, can you? Okay, well, this one, this is, a, this is a good one. So, for the benefit of Mr. Kite, the Beatles song, it was inspired by a vintage poster about a 19th century showman called Pablo Fanquez. And the, the poster was for a circus show that was happening in Rochdale in 1843. Right. Yeah, so John Lennon just saw this vintage poster for the benefit of Mr. Kite, which was this circus show that was happening in Rochdale. It actually says Rochdale on the poster. Wow. Mr. Kite was William Kite. He was a trapeze artist, so he's pictured in the poster. He's kind of hanging upside down. And I think this this would have been like massive in the Victorian era. Pablo Fanquez, he was a huge deal for Victorian uh, audiences. He was an orphan and he'd been sent to the workhouse, so he was a bit of a kind of working class hero. So there you go. Mm. And we've not mentioned, we've mentioned Gracie Fields, also Lisa Stansfield from Rochdale. Of course, yeah. Bilotti, is Bilotti from Rochdale? Is he? What? <laughs> we'll check that. It could be. Barb Younger is from Rochdale, isn't she? Barb Younger, the famous singer who's very well known for Brecht and Vile recordings. Right, I'm okay. I'm pretty sure. Oh, William Walton's from... Walton's from Oldham. Oldham, yeah. Just over the hill. Well, there you go. Rochdale, Rock City. Rochdale, Rock City. Anna Friel as well. She's from Rochdale. Right. <laughs> Probably need to stop listening to people from Rochdale, don't I? Because it's going through the electoral register. <laughs> For our notable exception, then, uh, on this podcast, we have a Rochdale flavour because my hometown of Wigan has appeared several times in uh, the charts. In I roll. Wigan's (laughs) Ovation, Wigan's Chosen Few, pretty much all to do with the Northern Soul scene, obviously. But Rochdale's name only occurs once in the history of the charts, and that is, of course, Mike Harding's hit, 
Rochdale Cowboy. Rochdale Cowboy. Is that an accurate representation yes. of life in Rochdale, Elizabeth? Did people ride around on Alsatian dogs dressed as cowboys? <laughs> With clogs and spurs. Although the That's spurs right. don't fit on the clogs. The spurs that don't fit reach on the clogs. Is that is that how people dress? <laughs> Mike Harding, there's Hollingworth Lake where we like to go walking. That's right. They used, there was a video there showing for years and years about the history of Hollingworth Lake because people, the, it was like a seaside town. It's a Victoria, yeah, yeah. Go and, ice skate on the lake when it froze over uh so there was like a historical video that mike harding was the voiceover for which we used to go and watch every time we went to hollingworth lake which was once every two days so that's what people do in rochdale and so when i first saw mike harding for the first time wow and even though he was fairly humbly dressed he was wearing a very multicolored poncho i was that's, really that's not humbly up. dressed no <laughs> actually although it was kind of <laughs> multicolored poncho is not humbly dressed in anybody's estimation i think the word you're looking for is extravagantly it dressed was... <laughs> it was homemade it was quite crochet it was crochet. oh well that's oh well i see yeah it was like a cross between a, a poncho and a tea cozy right um, it, what did I he say it. when you did he it. say what this old thing when you complimented him on it <laughs> I liked it, and I, if if anyone knows where you can get them, them right, tweet well, us because I'd like one. But I was you. very, I was very starstruck because you thought he was the voice of the Hollingworth Lake the pleasure of theme, the Hollingworth right? Lake. Yeah, incredible, exactly. incredible. A big day out. Well, that was our notable exception. Rochdale's only appearance in the chat. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Come with me now, if you will, Elizabeth, mm. to the winter No, of thanks, because we're going to quite a bleak place, aren't we? Well, yes, we are. We are going to quite a depressing... This is an amazing story, which has a melancholy element to it, but it's absolutely amazing. The story of Quatuor pour la fin du temps, to be accurate, or mm. the Quartet for the End of Time by Olivier Messiaen, who is, um, as you well know, a giant of 20th century music, a French composer. Absolutely. And this is one of his if not his major work. I mean, it is an astonishing piece of music that introduced lots of daring and adventurous sound, rhythm, coloration into 20th century music. But the story of its genesis is really incredible. Early in the Second World War, obviously, France has fallen. Messiaen, already a brilliant music student, is working as a medical orderly when the German troops overrun the place near, uh, near Nancy, where he was a medical orderly. They take him prisoner, 
and they march in for days on end alongside several other prisoners through in the cold with no sleep and no food, little to drink, camping out in open fields. And he falls in with a group of incredibly other musicians musicians yeah which is really extraordinary it's a beautiful story that, it is that Et- part of it isn't it etienne pasquier a cellist Henri acoca and a clarinetist then later jean mm. le Bullet, a violinist but it's essentially he strikes up a relationship with acoca who's a clarinetist they camp at night in open fields while they're being taken to the prisoner of war camp and um at some point messian sort of offers him a piece that i think he must have already written a piece at that point yeah. called the Abyss of the Birds. Yeah, you're I was a clarinet. Say he'd already started being because um, he was really interested in birdsong, wasn't he? And he used to record, yes, uh, transcribe birdsong and use it in his works. And you hear it here, don't you? You do. And apparently, they 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 play it for the first time in this field with the, with um, Pasquier, who's the cellist, acting as the music stand, holding the music up, and and it's an incredibly technically difficult piece, I believe. I don't play the clarinet; you do, but but eventually. Yeah. They get to this prisoner of war camp in Silesia. We should point out that it is a prisoner of war camp. It's not a concentration camp. I mean, we associate you know, names, those horrible names that are with their horrible residences like Buchenwald and Auschwitz and Treblinka. And there is a terrible, dark story about the music in those camps to be told that you can find out about, about how music was used, often in appalling ways, in those camps. But this is different. This is in a, a prisoner of war camp in Silesia where conditions were very different. But it was no... You know, picnic. picnic. It it, no. it was absolutely not. The French people in there, like Messiaen, were apparently treated reasonably well because France, at that point, were now collaborating. Yeah. The Eastern European Jews and the Poles were treated much worse, though. But I think there was a Messiaen... certain amount of freedom because well, did, weren't they? Didn't it, weren't they all able to club together and buy instruments, even well, if they were quite battered? But they they had that the freedom to do that, didn't they? And, I know um, there, were, there were, in a camp of 30,000 yeah, inmates, there were five or six instruments, apparently, circulating yeah. around. And this is the intriguing thing about the quartet for the mm. end of time. Well, one of them. It's written for, it's scored for quite an unusual four instruments. Piano, yeah. clarinet, violin and cello, which is unusual. The reason for that is it's four of the only instruments that Messiaen had to hand in the camp. Yeah. Yeah. Hindemith weirdly did write for that combination. That's right. Of instruments. That is right. But yes, but it's not a combination. But it's, it's a, no, it's rare. It's very rare. So he composes this piece over his stay in over the winter of the, you know nineteen forty. He composes this piece with these performers. His his room was a latrine. An ex latrine was a toilet. But they had you know they relatively. I think they had a fairly shall we say, sympathetic camp guard, you know, over yeah, Lieutenant, yeah. because they, I think partly they wanted to, to show it off to the Red Cross as an example of how enlightened and wonderful they were, the German captors. Keeping innocent people in prison. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. But, but they, they were keen to say, oh, look, these people are giving each other lectures and we're letting them write music and this sort of stuff. Um, he writes this extraordinary eight-movement piece of music over the, the state this, this winter and... We should say a little about the music. It, the quartet for the end of time, he was devoutly religious, he was devoutly Catholic, and he has this dream, doesn't he, based yeah. on the book of Revelations, in which he sees the angel with the rainbow crown. Yeah, yeah, who's reaching for heaven. Yeah, 
and, and the end of time. And saying that this is the end of time. Yeah. So it's not the end of time as in a, a, a depressing or a, a devastating or desolate idea. It is we will be finally free of the wearisome nature yeah. of time. And we'll be... Because a lot of people associate it, don't they, with his situation. But actually, that's not what he was, that's I not don't what think he was thinking. So. I think he was saying that no. time is actually a kind of wearisome thing that is holding us down. And we are looking towards eternity. Also, we should make the point, the piece is rhythmically extraordinary in that it isn't in conventional time signatures. So it's also the title is a reference to the fact that Messiaen is escaping from the bones of normal time signatures as well. All kinds of things. He studied Greek time signatures from ancient Greek music. He studied tabla rhythms in Indian music. Um, He composes this, this extraordinary piece... And but the premiere in the January of 1940 is this amazing thing. It is held in a, a, a hut, a theater, if you like, but it's a hut. About 350 people are crammed into this place, German soldiers, but the front row is wounded prisoners, wounded prisoners on stretchers laid out in front of the stage. Oh. It's minus four outside, snow is blowing in through the cracks in the door. In the room, it's at about just at about zero. It's just above freezing because of the heat of the bodies. The performers are wearing these, trying to play in these heavy coats, including Messiaen himself. Oh, I should say that one of the people who often popped in to watch rehearsals, another uh, inmate of the camp, the future French president Francois Mitterrand, who was a young was a young soldier there. Oh, but they the performance okay. later in life. Messian, who was something of an overdramatist and a romancer, said the cello only had three strings, the piano keys were stuck together. Apparently that's not true. But they did play this piece to people who probably had never heard music like this before. I mean, it is an extraordinary piece. It would have been out there, like you say. Extraordinary in terms of its rhythms. It was all based around prime numbers as well, wasn't it? The patterns. I think there's all sorts of things going on. The four instruments themselves very rarely play at the same time. Like there's a piece for solo clarinet in there. There's a piece that's just piano and cello. They very rarely play at the same time. But yes, there are all kinds of things informing it. The layers of complexity. But the actual sound, although to us now... I mean, it's still quite daring. I've been, I've been, I've been listening to a lot of listening to it a lot still recently. Still pretty out there. But it must yeah, have yeah. been extraordinary for those people in that camp, these wounded soldiers and these these German officers. And but they listened apparently. Messian said with rapt attention. Do you know that great quote? He says, "Never, ever again was my music ever listened to with such rapt attention." Because they've been so starved of that kind of. Exactly. And- I bet starved of anything like that. But it is a, it is an extraordinary thing that I think they thought, yeah, we we whether we get it or not, there's something about this music that's compelling. It reminds me a bit, you know, the story that Waiting yeah. for Godot, one of Waiting for Godot's early performances, was in a prison, and the prison warders said, oh, they're going to go mad. They're going to yeah. this this weirdo rubbish. They'll they'll not get this. We'll have a riot on our hands. And apparently, the prisoners in this American prison watched it enwrapped attention and at the end said well we totally get what that's about you know it's about lack of free will and you know yeah I mean it goes to show that if there are no other distractions exactly that maybe you can you know the experience then is different isn't it and exactly. you can give your full attention to something and perhaps understand it on a whole other level because yeah. it's impossible to be distracted by anything that's else right in that in that scenario 
Well, they certainly did on this day in 1940. And it becomes part of the modern repertoire, I guess. It's, yeah. At the time, I mean, it has got its critics. And at the time, people didn't go overboard on it. But as, as the century develops, I think more and more people see it as a, a sort of landmark piece. Um, uh, and uh, and two, two of Messian's students, who I guess you could say it has an influence on them, Boulez and Stockhausen, later yeah. go on to revolutionise music. Um, Messian lived to a ripe old age. A, a detail I really love particularly in this present era, is that they were... Akoka, the clarinetist, and Messian were great friends and they forged this deep bond during the writing and performing of this music. Temperamentally, they were completely different. Messian was a devout Catholic. Akoka was an absolutely fundamentalist atheist, a revolutionary and an atheist. And they just put those differences aside. They said, well, we have faith in different things. And they put those things aside. I just think it's really interesting that in this day and age when people just will not listen to anybody of any other opinion than their own yeah, you wonder yeah. would would that happen now you know these two guys could say well we believe in completely different things but we respect yeah. each other about this music you know it's yeah a, yeah so it, and brought and together by music as well that's nice isn't it that's lovely brought together by the power of music by the power of the yeah clarinet <laughs> by the power of the clarinet <laughs> well there you go that's the story of the quartet at the end of time wonderful the most extraordinary Premier of all time, probably one of the most, if you want to call it a gig, one of the most extraordinary gigs of all time. Um, I don't think this, in this instance, though, anybody will be getting in touch like the pistols at the Lesser Free Trade all saying, I was there. I'm pretty sure no one's going to get in touch and say that, but you never know. Right. I'm off to see if I can get a new multicoloured poncho. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me. Tell me where. I'm going to find. Notable. The podcast. Uh, no. Hello and welcome to Notable. Already? Episode 8. <laughs> yes. No, it's not. It is, isn't it? Oh, is it not? You should put this out, Jeff. I thought we'd... I thought it's it definitely not special. 8. <laughs> it's not far off, you know. <laughs> oh, God. What is wrong with me? Why can I not just be a normal person? <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.